Rachel Hoare is the UK Sunday Times bestselling author whose latest book, The Hidden Years, is the story of secrets, loss and betrayal set in Cornwall during World War II and then looking ahead closer to contemporary times to the heavy days of the 1960s. Welcome to the joys of binge reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today on The Binge Reading Show, Rachel talks about families and their secrets, and the strange coincidences when life mirrors art in ways we can't possibly anticipate. Our free books giveaway this week is Sweet Snow, Closed Door Romance, a selection of Valentine's Day love stories to round out the month, including Tangled Destiny, the prequel to my Of Gold and Blood historical mystery series. This offer closes February 29, so act right now. The links for where you can download those books can be found in the show notes for this episode on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. Before we get to Rachel, just a reminder, you can help defray the costs of production of the show by buying me a cup of coffee on buymeacoffee.com forward slash Jenny Wheel, like the car wheel, and then a little X like a kiss. So if you enjoy the show, remember, you can also leave us a review so others will find us too. Word of mouth is still the best recommendation for people to find the show and great books they would love to read. But now, here's Rachel. Hello there, Rachel, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Jenny. It's really good to be here. Rachel, I understand that The Hidden Years is your 13th novel. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Unlucky for some, but I'm cheerful about it. That's great. And they're all in very much the same vein. You haven't been one of those authors who's jumped genres. They're character family stories of upheaval and secrets, sometimes cross-generational, sometimes not so much the dual timeline. I wondered mm. how you came to identify that as maybe your area that you were most interested in writing about in the beginning. I think it came from quite deep inside. I've always been very interested in stories of my own family. My maternal grandmother was one of those sorts of grandmothers who was the repository of tales of characters in the family and all the things that had happened, good and bad, and who was guilty and who said what to whom and so on. And I became very fascinated by that. And although the first of my books, The Dream House, wasn't about any real-life family members. It was about family issues and family secrets, which was my main motivation, really. I believe that every family has secrets. I've been a bit of an amateur genealogist myself in my time, and it's amazing when you start to dig what you discover, isn't it? Yes, it is. Some of these things might seem very ordinary, but when they're happening in your own family, they are very special and it's the old one that blood is thicker than water, that the links of family are very important. But actually, people within 
families are always struggling to find their place, I think. If they're the, the second child, they are struggling sometimes about their place in the family when the eldest child might be the one that's lionized most or whatever. It's different in every family, but it is endlessly fascinating for those within the family, certainly. And sometimes, if the stories are well told, to people outside the family as well. That's right. And I guess we also have to take into account how what's happening at the time, the generational changes also so affect the prospects. In The Hidden Years, I think you capture beautifully the two key female characters. The World War II one is very much taken up with her duties as a nurse, working with wounded soldiers by the time the book advances a bit. And the one from the 1960s is very typically caught up in that spirit of seeking freedom, chucking in university and the musician boyfriend and going off to the country to something like a rather sedate sort of commune. And both time frames, they're young women searching for their place in life, their identity, what they're meant to be doing, but in very different social circumstances, aren't they? I think you've put your finger on it, really. The, the 1960s generation, of course, are the children of the wartime generation. And for the wartime generation, duty and rationing and doing your bit and so forth were absolutely vitally important. Whereas the next generation rather rebel against that and they're looking for something different. But in both generations, sometimes individuals don't fit. They don't fit in exactly. And I suppose Belle in the, in the 1960s, who's very much searching for her place in the world, realises that the search for freedom is perhaps not enough. Yeah, that's right. Now, Belle, your 1960s protagonist, as we've mentioned, she's chasing up family secrets and it's partly related to a country house called Silverwood, which happens to be the place she ends up with this new boyfriend. She uncovers yes. a photograph of herself as a toddler on the beach near Silverwood and she has no recollection of being there. She's too young to really remember and she's very curious as to why this photograph exists and what connection the family has with the house. Can you tell us a little bit about the nucleus for this story yourself? Was there a family photograph or something that sparked this idea? There was something that sparked the idea. The story is set mostly in a beautiful, beautiful Cornwall at the mouth of the Helston River, which runs into the sea near the port of Falmouth on the south coast of Cornwall. Very beautiful area, but also an important area in World War II, especially when it came to D-Day. So the House of Silverwood, which is a fictional house, was home in the Second World War to an evacuated school. By the time Bell comes around in the 1960s, it's become this home for this off-grid community. What inspired it was finding a photograph in a book called Cornwall at War, which I realised with a shock showed a class of boys from a school that was evacuated to Cornwall during the Second World War. And it was the school that my father was at. And so I pored over this photograph, wondering which of the boys might be my father. In fact, none of them was. It was a different class, the class above, I think. 
So my next port of call was to actually write to the school and say, do you have any other photographs of this house where the school was evacuated to? And I was sent one and told that my father was in this photograph somewhere. I couldn't actually identify him in the lines of boys in the class, the year photograph, but it gave me a very warm feeling to think that he was there. And it really engendered the family story. My father's school was evacuated to a hotel on the south coast of Cornwall, but I chose to invent a house for my purposes. Was your dad not alive still for you to be able to talk with him about that directly? Sadly not. One of the things in the story that did amaze me, though, was the fact that in the past story in Truro, which is the capital of Cornwall, the county capital, the girl in the past, whose name is Imogen, is a nurse in a hospital there, and a German bomb is dropped on the hospital. And when my mother read the book, she said, oh, your father always talked about that bomb, she said. And then I realised that he, it being the school holidays, he would actually have been living at home a few hundred metres up the road from the hospital and he would have heard it go off and so on. So that really gave me prickles at the back of my neck to think of that strong connection. Yeah, It's amazing but... when you're writing fiction how close it sometimes gets to reality. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. That's amazing. Look, a couple of books before The Hidden Years, you wrote one called The Beautiful Spy and yeah. a similar story really of a young woman of that generation who wants to feel she's making a difference in the world. She doesn't want to have the traditional unquestioned pathway of marriage and family just immediately. She wants to at least explore her options. And she's drawn into accepting a rather risky assignment, working as a spy in Britain before the war to the precursor for MI6, MI5. Now, I gather that Millie, your character, is based on a true story. Could you tell us a little bit about that particular woman and that story? Minnie is based, I call her Minnie Gray, is based on a real-life woman called Olga Gray, who, in 1932, was recruited by the Secret Service to spy on the British Communist Party. I came across Olga when I was actually researching an idea for another book I wanted to write, another novel I wanted to write, which ended up going onto the back burner because I was looking for a wartime spying story as a backstory for outline I was working on. And I just came across the story of Olga in a biography of the spymaster M, who started off the Secret Service at this time. And it was not a story I'd ever heard before. We've heard quite a lot about the special operations executive, the women who were recruited to go to Europe during the Second World War, who were wireless operators and couriers, sometimes at the risk of their lives. We've heard a great deal about them. But this story from a dozen years before the special operations executive really pulled me in because the early 30s 
you think of as quite a sedate time, really. And although we're always thinking about the gradual rise of Hitler in the late 20s, early 30s, until the time he becomes Chancellor in 1933, in fact, the workings of the British Communist Party were of at least as great interest to the British government as, as anything to do with fascism. And there was a very real fear that went back to the 1917 Russian Revolution that Russian communism might cause revolution in other European countries, especially Britain. And as a result of that, M. Maxwell Knight was charged with investigating the British Communist Party. And he considered the best way of doing this was to send very quiet, unassuming people like Olga in as administrators, secretaries, to sit there quietly typing letters and so forth, but keeping their ears open for what was going on in the British Communist Party offices. Yes, it's a very different side of the spy industry to what we might imagine from James Bond, most unglamorous side. And, but it brings out extremely well the emotional conflict that situation gave rise to because Millie in your book starts to feel a real conflict between her growing relationships with the people she's working with, the friends, and her handler at MI5, who she really looks up to and wants to please. But she mm. feels she's betraying the people that she works for. How did you get inside Olga's head? Did she leave memoirs or did you have to imagine all of that part of the story? Maxwell Knight himself wrote an account of what's happened in these years. And although he didn't write anything that condemned his own behaviour, he very much gave the impression of Minnie as, oh, sorry, Olga, <laughs> real life Olga, as somebody who was under considerable psychological pressure. and there was evidence of her having to be admitted to a nerve hospital at least once because the pressure on her was so great. It was a matter really of me inserting myself into the information that there actually is and thinking what it actually must have been like for quite an ordinary young woman in these circumstances, especially I don't know. I think, I hope she comes across as quite a character with a lot of stamina. She was not somebody who was frightened off by the least sign of danger. She was actually up for all sorts of things, such as being sent out to India on her own, without a chaperone, into quite a dangerous situation where she was supposed to meet Indian communists and hand over information and money. And although she found it incredibly stressful doing it, she did get on and do it. And so you've got this dichotomy, really, someone who was incredibly brave, but at the same time suffered terrible stress because of, the, of doing the things that she was required to do. And I'm not sure that anybody's written about a spy quite like that before certainly in fiction. Yes, I think you're right. And what does come through, she certainly doesn't appear to be weak to me, but she does appear to be 
put under really unfair kind of levels of stress. And you get the feeling of some of the stories we've heard in more recent times about undercover cops being put into very difficult positions and then not being mm. given adequate support. And with your character, you feel as if she is not given adequate support by MI5. I'm not sure whether her handler in your story is the equivalent of Maxwell Knight or one below him. We're never quite clear what exact level in the service he is. He is in. Maxwell Knight. Yeah. He is yeah. Maxwell Knight, yes. Yes. Who is the model for M in uh, the James Bond stories? Yes. Oh, he man. comes across as a very attractive man, but yes. gradually you realize that there's quite a degree of manipulation going on there. She almost worships the ground he walks on and the most important thing to her is to both serve her country but not fail him. And yes. she extends herself probably way beyond what she really needed to try and fulfill that. And then, sadly, she gets rather, I won't, don't want to leave any spoilers, but she isn't given adequate support, really. No, he himself is somebody who had various psychological tics, which meant that he really put himself first. He was a very manipulative man. He was manipulative of women. He was very good at charming women. He was probably an unacknowledged homosexual, but that didn't stop him marrying several times. Very complicated character. And although he said on paper that he was supporting his spies, and he certainly did regularly meet up with Minnie and uh, with Olga, and uh, in some respects did his best to support her, he was always egging her on to the next thing. And when push came to shove at the end, and he had basically had what he wanted out of her in terms of his the brief he had been given, then he did abandon her, and she never really forgave him for that. Yes. You manage, I thought one of the clever things about the way you handled the story was that two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through, right the way through, really, you felt this sinking feeling of how is this poor girl ever going to have a good end from this when she's no. forced to confront the people that she was very fond of in the courtroom, for example, you just feel so sorry for her. But you give her a great happy ending, which we won't spoil, but I hope Olga also got her happy ending, did she? But the ending in the book is based on the real-life ending, if that cheers you up. Oh, <laughs> it does. But it's, I was very careful not to give her a fairy tale ending. It is a happy ending for her, a new life and so on. But I, I didn't want to make it all into something chocolate boxy because it wasn't. And you can tell from the prologue, I guess, from the very beginning that what had happened to her as a spy was something that was never going to leave her. She was scared for the rest of her life. I think we have referred earlier to the fact that you were an editor with a big publishing house. I actually can't remember if we've referred to that already or not. Um, no, Robert Wallins in, in London, yeah. How did you make the switch from editing to writing? I'm sure people would be interested to know that. How many years were you editing? I was in publishing for about 18 years. I started with another publishing company for two or three years, and then I moved to HarperCollins. It wasn't HarperCollins then, but it became HarperCollins. So I was working on fiction. I was working with a range of authors, very many authors of what we tend to call women's fiction. 
such as Barbara Erskine and Sidney Sheldon and Susan Howitch and a lot of what were slightly disparagingly called chiclet authors. And when it came to around about the millennium, 2000, I was by then married and I was having my third child. And at the same time, my husband, who is also a writer, but was also employed as a copywriter in a big company, he went freelance and we looked at each other and we thought, do we want to go on working under this pressure, both of us with three children and London house prices and blah, blah, blah. So we elected to move out of London do the big downsize when we moved to Norwich, where he came from and where there was a family network. And it has been a very happy move, but it left me not quite sure of who I was and what I was doing. I'd not been a full-time mother before, and I knew I wanted to keep doing something that was, well, for me, and earned a bit of money, always useful. And writing was just one of a number of things that I started trying to do and it was one of the things that happened to work out. I was writing the type of novel that I wanted to write but I also knew that it was the sort of novel that people wanted to read and it was a fairly straightforward job to find an agent in the site. I knew which people, I had a very short list of people I thought would be interested in the kind of book I was writing. But that didn't necessarily mean that somebody wanted to publish the book. My agent sent it out to quite a number of editors and there were an awful lot of no's. But then there was a resounding yes from Simon and Schuster. I joined their list and 13 books later, I am still with them, with the same editor, which is quite unusual these days. And I'm very grateful for it. Yes, that's fantastic. You've earned that magic tagline Sunday Times bestseller, which in the UK is printed gold, I imagine. Did, was there one particular book that was the breakthrough book for you? How has your career got gone from the beginning? I think quite often you need a little bit of luck, a little bit of a break. And it was the fourth book that happened with A Place of Secrets. And that was picked by Richard and Judy for their, for their promotion. And it was past the days when they had a television chat program, but they'd teamed up with WH Smith and between them, they all sold a lot of copies and that made a huge difference to the sales of my books. And although that particular book didn't actually get onto the Sunday Times bestseller list, the next one, A Gathering Storm did, and then the subsequent ones, most of them did as well. I've now sold over a million copies of my books and somehow has all worked out very well. That sounds wonderful, a wonderful break. Obviously, the fact that you were known to them probably helped in the sense that they knew you had such a sterling background in editing and writing beforehand, but that's fantastic. You have also been doing some teaching, haven't you, at the University of East Anglia, what do you find with your students and what advice would you give new writers starting out? Yeah, that was something I started doing shortly after I moved to Norwich. I was approached by a member of staff there who was very anxiously looking for someone to teach a publishing module. And that's something I 
took on and did for a number of years, branching out to teach creative writing once I myself had started writing and felt confident enough to dare to teach it to other people. They were very talented, a lot of the students that I was teaching. Some of them wanted to run before they could walk, which is quite natural. The creative writing courses at the University of East Anglia are taught very much within the context of the critical, by which I mean that reading existing works is very much part of the curriculum. To be able to read other people's books and critique them and respond to them as a writer is the approach there. And I think that advice carries on very clearly to anybody who is seeking publication to read other people's books, not from the point of view of wanting to copy anybody, but writing and reading are one great big conversation. And I find all the time while I'm reading for pleasure that I'm noticing how things are done successfully or otherwise. Things tip off other things in my own mind and send me down little rabbit holes with my own writing. And I I find reading other authors very inspiring for my own writing. So that is my main piece of advice for a writer. That's great that it leads on to a question that I like to ask everyone, and that is, what are they liking to read? This is the joys of binge reading. Many of our listeners will be the whale readers who read a lot of books. Would you like to give some recommendations for recent books that you've read that you think they might enjoy? Yes, I should say I try to read quite widely, not necessarily in a particular genre. Actually, I'm sent a lot of, of book proofs by publishers of authors' books writing in a similar genre to my own. And I'm very glad to do that and to respond, sometimes giving quotes and so forth for covers. I like to read a wider range of books than that. So recently, for instance, I've read Rose Tremaine's latest, which is Aptly and Forever, which is a a story of adolescence, unrequited love, which is beautifully written and funny and not very long. It's a delight to read. An author I will always read the next book of. One example of this is the crime writer Anne Cleves. I'm a great fan of the Shetland and the Vera books. And then there's another line that she sets in Devon in the UK. I love the American author Anne Patchett. Her books I always read. Some I like better than others, but hey-ho. What else have I read recently? I've read one of the books on the Booker shortlist, which is by Paul somebody. Sorry, it's called Another Eden, which is a very unusual story. I am trying to read more widely, and I like reading nonfiction as well, especially history. And one of the pleasures of writing my own books is the amount of history I can read as part of my research. That's always delightful. That's great. That leads on nicely to the next question that I like to ask. Looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing in your own creative career you'd change, what would it be? I've spent an awful lot of time being worried about my writing and will the books work out? Will they be published properly? And so on. Sometimes I feel I haven't stopped to enjoy the whole process enough. I think enjoyment of reading and writing, well, it's what 
we do it sometimes, I don't know, to fill time. We do it educationally and so on. But I think above all, we need to enjoy what we're doing. I'm not of the school who thinks, for instance, that because you've started a book, you've got to finish reading it. Yeah, I think that business of enjoyment. Yes, that's great. What is next for Rachel as author? What have you got on your desk over the next 12 months? Let us know. You've probably got one coming out soon and you might be starting to think of the next one. I'm not quite sure how your timetable at Simon & Schuster works. I'm 65,000 words into the writing of another book, which doesn't yet have a title and which has to be delivered in the spring sometime, so I'd better get on with it. I started that in about May or June, I think, last May or June. I'm only really getting the word count going now. Can you give us a um, little hint about what anything to do with the setup for that one? Yes. It was inspired by the story of my mother and my aunt, who are twins. They're now 93. But they were both women scientists in the 1950s and had very hair-raising experiences working in what was very much a man's world. And I interviewed them both separately to write down their stories and so on. So that was a sort of starting point for a book which is about some women in science. It's not in the least bit like Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus, which has done so amazingly well, but perhaps it will provide another perspective for readers. I've got the paperback of The Hidden Years coming out in February here in the UK. Otherwise, I'm still doing events for The Hidden Years. So that book is very much in my mind to talk about at literary festivals and so on. So the rest of the year, I don't know. I I gave up the teaching because I felt I wasn't getting much of a life outside work. My children are now grown up and I like to try and visit them as much as possible. And I like to see more of my friends. And But I'm also always on the lookout for something new to try travel, new things to join and so on. So what are some of the recent new things you've joined or traveled that you've undertaken? Have you got anything already? We're going to Copenhagen in February, which should be nice, maybe a bit chilly. I sing in choirs. I'm going on a gardening course. We have a garden, but I'm not a very proficient gardener, so I want to pick up a few tips. That's good. I'm not sure with Simon and & Schuster and being published in that traditional way, whether they emphasize as heavily as the indie authors do about interacting with your readers online. But do you interact with readers online and where can they find you online? I'm on Facebook. I have a page, but I also am there as an individual, if you like, just with my name, Rachel Hoare. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. And I have put my name up on a couple of the new platforms, Threads and Blue Skies, but I haven't really got to grips with how they work yet. But I also have a website with a contact form and emails that people send for that come straight into my inbox. I had a lovely experience on Monday, slightly grumpily getting up on a Monday morning, opening my laptop. And there was a lovely email from a lady in Australia who said she'd just read one of my books and really loved it and talked about it for a while. And it really set me up for the day hearing from her. 
that's absolutely lovely. And I can confirm that you answer very promptly because I used that form to set up this meeting and you came back. It was just yep. fantastic. You're very reachable there. We'll have all those links in the show notes for this episode when it goes online. There'll be a transcript of this interview for people who don't particularly want to listen to a podcast. So it'll all be yeah. there as evergreen material forevermore. Wow. This is a wonderful endeavour, Jenny. Thank you so much. And you must work so hard to do this and help so many people. Look, it's great of you to acknowledge that because it does actually take quite an investment of time. And I must say, this year I've decided to make it fortnightly rather than weekly for that very reason, because I was feeling it was consuming rather a lot of time. But it is such a pleasure to have the chance to meet and talk with people like you, Rachel. So that's the payback for me. It really is. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for asking me. And I do hope that your audience enjoy the interview. Thanks. And we'll look forward to the science story. So you will be turning that into a fully fictionalised version, won't you? Oh, yes. As I say, I'm 5,000 words into it now, and it should be published next spring. Great. Spring, roundabout February, March 25. Thanks so much. (laughs) Thank you, Jenny. Bye for now. Next time on Binge Reading, Amanda Barrett in a gripping World War II drama, Sisters of Warsaw. Amanda has got more than a dozen books to her name. She's a Christie Award-winning novelist with some of her well-known historical novels and novellas including My Dearest Bonhoeffer, The White Rose Resist, and Within These Walls of Sorrow. This latest book, The Warsaw Sisters, focuses on the heartbreaking events that took place during the Second World War. True sisters Antonina and Helena grew up in Poland living simple, normal lives, but in August 1939, their world is destroyed. That day, their father is sent off to defend Poland against the looming threat of German invasion, and they must choose different paths, not only to survive, but also to resist the Nazi occupation. That's on the next episode of Binge Reading in two weeks' time. And remember, if you enjoyed the show, leave us a review so others will find us too. Word of mouth is still the best way for others to discover the show and great books they would love to read. That's it for this week. Catch you next time, and meanwhile, happy reading.